We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. And when we say God glorified, what we mean is that we exist for the purpose of seeing God receive praise, worship, honor, glory, credit, and fame. We believe that he is due. And so we want to spend our lives, our words, everything pointing back to Jesus. Right? It's why when you come here, we say our one desire is that when you leave here, that you'll marvel at Jesus more. that we chose the name Emmaus, the vision of our church is that we want to be a people who declare who Jesus is from all of the scriptures, that we talk about him, we proclaim him here in this pulpit, we do it in our kids ministry, through our songs, through our confessions, through the scriptures that we read, we do it with our neighbors and with our co-workers and with our children at home, that we are a people who declare who Jesus is and that as Jesus is being declared. Hearts are burning with the truth of who he is and eyes are being opened to believe it and there's faith being planted in the hearts of men and women. We want to see this transformation take place in people all across our city. That's what we're about. That's what we will spend ourselves on as long as God sees fit to leave a church called Emmaus in existence. Good morning, Emmaus. All right, hey, uh, men who went on the retreat, I hope you're not as sore as I am. Uh, for a retreat, we ran way too much. So I, uh, I already had a brother tell me this morning that because of an injury sustained during a vicious game of volleyball, which that doesn't feel like, that feels like a paradox, uh, he couldn't tie his shoes this morning. So... <laughs> That's the kind of we treat we had as men. So, but seriously, hey, ladies, if you uh, stepped up and basically were a single mom for 24 hours so that your, your husband could go to the men's retreat, thank you so much. Um, the men so blessed me the last 24 hours. Uh, my, my soul feels refreshed um, from getting to spend time with them. So thank you for, for sending them to the retreat. Hey, we have a ton of work to do this morning. We're gonna be in John 17, so feel free to flip there the high priestly prayer. We're going to try to tackle the whole chapter today. So before we do that, I want to teach you a theological word. All right, probably not a surprise to you. I want to teach you a theological word that Pastor Sam said a few weeks ago, and that if you were in our introduction to theology class, we talked about just about every, every week of the class. That theological word is incomprehensibility. All right, incomprehensibility. It's not a super complicated word, and it means what you might think it means, that God is incomprehensible, right? We cannot fully know him. That doesn't mean we, we shouldn't try or that we can't know him in even a saving way, but we cannot fully know him. He is incomprehensible. You see, I'm worried that you and I have been taught a very domesticated view of God. Right, 21st century evangelicalism has, has been given a pretty small view of God. The way that you and I have largely been taught to think about the creator as the creature is that he is like us, just infinitely bigger. Okay, so we have knowledge, but he has all knowledge. We have power, but he has all power. We, we, we take up the time of about 60 to 90 years, but he takes up all time. And so we've been trained to think that he's like us, but bigger. And I want to postulate for you this morning that that is not the proper way to think about God. God isn't just like us, but bigger. God is utterly unique from us, right? Not just a bigger version, completely different than us, in kind, in measure. In fact, measure's not even the right word because he can't be measured. And so the attributes, the essence that he possesses is unlike our, our essence, our attributes, not just bigger versions of them. He is utterly unique from us. 
And that's where this word comes in. He is incomprehensible. He's incomprehensible for, for a few reasons, but one of the reasons is that he exists and try unity with himself. We do not. Right, we can see his incomprehensibility in Exodus 33. You, you don't have to flip there, but just really quickly, think about the story. Moses is about to ascend Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments from the Lord. When he goes up there, he asks one of the most preposterous questions, I think, recorded in the Bible. Moses says to the Lord, let me see your glory. All right, what an ambitious question. Let me see your glory. And the crazy part of Exodus 33 is that God obliges. God says, okay, I'll let you see my glory. But here's the deal, Moses. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of this rock. And I'm, I'm going to pass by you. And I'm going to let you see my back. Because if you saw my face, you would die. Right now, the type of God who if we see his face, we will die, is not just bigger than us, he's different than us. He's incomprehensible. So why do I start my sermon off with incomprehensibility? Well, I think it is going to really impact the way that we view this text. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all God, all their own persons... In an incomprehensible triunity amongst themselves, they are co-eternal, they are co-substantial, they are complete in themselves, they are lacking nothing. The doctrine of the Trinity entails a beauty that should ignite eternal praise. No analogy in the Christian life compares to it. Theologians throughout the centuries have tried to capture the Trinity in some kind of analogy, and they all fall short. Listen, the Trinity is not like water in that it can be vapor, or an ice cube, or water, yet still be the same thing. It is not like that. The Trinity is not like a three-leaf clover, though it has three parts, but it's one clover. It's not like that. The Trinity is not like you, and that you can be a daughter, a mother, and a sister at the same time and still be one. The Trinity is nothing like these things. The Trinity is unlike anything we've ever known or experienced, and it's infinitely beautiful. So this morning, the reason that matters is because God, in all of his incomprehensibility, through grace, is going to give us a slight peek behind the curtain. John 17, as I read and studied through this passage, theologian after theologian after theologian called this the greatest chapter in the Bible. Right? They, they, they might have a hard-pressed case because there's some great chapters in the Bible, but I do think they might be onto something by noticing that this might be the most peculiar chapter of the Bible. Because what we have in this chapter is the Lord's last prayer before, after the Lord's first supper. Jesus, on the brink of his death, prays for an entire chapter of the Bible. We have other prayers of Jesus, but not like this one. The Lord's Prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer in the Gospels is but a few sentences and is primarily a demonstration of how to pray. The other prayers that we have in the Gospel of John aren't actually recorded. They're just mentioned. That Jesus lifted his eyes to heaven and prayed. They're just mentioned. They're not recorded. Yet here, this prayer, God gave us. So we get to sit at the feet of Scripture and watch the incomprehensible second person of the Trinity talk to the incomprehensible first person of the Trinity for 26 verses. This is the uh, pinnacle of, I want to be a fly on the wall to hear that conversation. Well, we get it. It's here in John 17. One theologian, J.C. Ryle, who was a, uh, a theologian in Liverpool, England, he said about this chapter, there are sentences and words and expressions in these 26 verses which no one probably has ever unfolded completely. We have not minds to do it. He goes on to say, this chapter we have now begun is the most remarkable in the Bible. It stands alone and there is nothing like it. He's not wrong. Jesus talking to the Father for 26 verses what a treat. Let's pray and jump in.
God the Father, we, we love you and we thank you for this morning. Lord, we are very thankful that you gave us this chapter. To be able to peek behind the curtain of the, uh, of the Trinity, of, of your existence, of your essence, and see you and Jesus in conversation. God, that's good and it's gracious that you gave this to us. And so, Lord, here's what we want this morning. We want diligence, and we want carefulness, and we want clarity. We want to look at these 26 verses as Jesus prays to you, and we want to learn from them. We want to sit under them. So God, be with us as we look through these verses. Open our eyes. Give us supernatural attention. Give us curiosity. Give us resolve. Give us clarity. Give us heat and light. Make it come to life and make it impassion our heart. God, we need you this morning. We ask for your grace in these things. May your spirit preach a better word than I've prepared. And may it all be for your glory and for our delight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's read John 17. We're going to read the whole thing, and then we'll jump through in sections. John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people, whom you gave me out of the world, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and I have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled." But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. All right, we have some work to do. I texted the pastors this week just to confess to them that this text intimidates me. 
Uh, just to be totally frank, my cards on the table, as I prepared, the more and more I prepared, the more and more I got worried. My wife, uh, even during the third song this morning, she, she just leaned over and said, how are you feeling? And I whispered back, nervous. This text is a lot. It's big. Right? It felt heavy to think through how to parse this out and pull out of it the glorious implications to give to you this morning. It felt heavy. One of the difficulties of the chapter is how to even outline it. Right? Did you feel the cyclical pattern? There, there were many clauses repeated. And so how do I outline this, this prayer that Jesus is giving to the Father in a way that's helpful for us to navigate our way through the chapter. And there's multiple ways we could do it, is there not? However, to give us some, some guardrails on where we're going to go, let me, let me give you an outline that I think we're going to take this morning uh, to make sense of this big chunk of text. Here's our outline this morning for all you note takers. Verse 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. And then verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for those who would believe because of his disciples, i.e. us. As we go through these sections, you're going to see many themes. And it was hard to choose between who he's praying for and the themes on which to draw out most. So I'm going to give you both, and we're going to follow the who he's praying for pattern of the text. But here's just a few themes. One, the mutual glorification of the Father and the Son. Two, the mediating and protecting ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Three, the unity of the church. And four, the establishment of the saints' glorification and their joy. Let me give you those four again really quickly. Pay attention to, to the text and watch for these four the mutual glorification of the Father and Son, the mediating and protecting ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, the unity of the church, and the establishment of the saints' glorification and their joy. Let's jump in, verse 1 through 5. I'm not going to read every section over again, but verse 1 through 5, I will, to start us off. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. The son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Look at the very first few words. Jesus had spoken these words. When Jesus had spoken these words, what does that do for us? What that means is what's happening here in 17 is directly connected to what just happened in 16. Right? It said when Jesus had spoken these words. Some, some translations translated after Jesus had spoken these words. I think both translations are valid, but what it's doing is it's connecting the high priestly prayer of John 17 to the farewell discourse of 13 through 16. Right? This is the last chapter of the farewell discourse. However, it's not just the last chapter, it's the pinnacle of the farewell discourse. Jesus is turning from talking to his disciples to talking to the Father. And moreover, look at the chapter, the heading of chapter 18. Look at your Bible and look at the heading of 18. It says, the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. So that's what's coming for us. This prayer ends, and that's what happens. So not only then do we have the incomprehensible second person of the Trinity communicating to the incomprehensible first person of the Trinity, this is a prayer on the brink of his death, which will change the course of human history forever. So it's not just any prayer. It's the prayer the night before he dies. So this is connected to the farewell discourse. We can see the first theme of mutual glorification as well here, can't we? And this is important for us to keep in mind as Christians. The, the Trinity does not have inward jealousy for one another. The Father isn't jealous that we pray in Jesus' name. The Spirit isn't jealous that we're called Christians and not Spiritans. The Trinity is not jealous for one another's glory. They mutually glorify one another in their intra-Trinitarian relationship. Verse 2, 
since you have given him authority over all flesh. Since you have given him authority over all flesh. I love this. There's a reason even today in liturgy, Sam said it. He referred to Jesus as King Jesus. And I like that title because Jesus is the king. What is he the king of? He's the king over all flesh. You, me, your friends, your family, all believers who have ever and will, who ever, who have and will ever live, all non-believers who have and will ever live, he is the king of all flesh. Whether we bow the knee or not, he's the king. And with this sovereign rule over all flesh and all people, what does he do with it? Look at the text. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to do what? To give eternal life to, who, to all whom you have given him. This is utterly rich. This is so good. The ruler of the world, the king of kings, who has authority over all people, believing, non-believing, dead, will be alive, all of them. He can do whatever he pleases. And what does he do? He gives life to people. What's more is that we learn in just a few verses that the way of salvation, the way of this eternal life that he gives will come from a brutal, unjust, and humiliating death that he didn't deserve to die. So there's no concept of humility like the Christian concept of humility. The king who has everything gives up everything that those who have nothing might have him who is now their everything. Look, it gives a qualification to all whom you have given him. One of the consequences of God's rule over all people is that he is sovereign over everything, including salvation. Meaning that the eternal life that Jesus grants, according to verse 2, are for those whom the Father has given to Jesus. You will see a theme here that plays out throughout the prayer. A distinction between those who are part of the world and those whom the Father has given Jesus. He will even say in the next section, did you catch it? I am not praying for the world. I'm praying for those you have given me. I don't know how this makes you feel or how this news sits with you, that God is sovereign over the world such that he is even sovereign over salvation. But I hope it rings in your ear as sweet news. For what else would be the case? If Jesus wasn't sovereign over salvation, who would be us? How in the world would that be good news? My friends, thank God it is not so. For if we were sovereign over our salvation instead of Christ, we would surely ruin the whole endeavor. Praise God that he's the one who's sovereign. Verse 3 through 5. Jesus says, he says this. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This salvation that Jesus authoritatively gives comes from knowing the Father and the Son. And then, don't miss the mutual glorification going on here. This is significant Trinitarianism. The Son glorifies the Father which to all of the Jewish listeners would not have been controversial. But we see the Father is going to glorify the Son. There's a mutual glorification here. And that is very controversial to his Jewish listeners. So unlike all people who have ever lived, this glory is a two-way street. The Son glorifies the Father. The Father glorifies the Son. All right, 16 through 19. So we're moving now from, from 1 through 5 where Jesus prays for himself to 6 through 19 when he prays for his disciples. I'm not going to read it uh, for the sake of time, but don't miss Jesus' two-way work in the verses. You've likely heard me say that Jesus has a unique identity that was needed and necessary to provide salvation. And these verses give an example of what I mean. Jesus has a two-way ministry in these verses. Don't miss that. He comes down to manifest God's name to God's people. And he goes up to intercede on behalf of God's people to God. But he comes down to manifest his name. He goes up to intercede for his people. 
Jesus says that he has manifested the Father's name before the people, and what we see here is the reality that, that Jesus is the full revelation of the Father. We've seen this all over John. All over, literally, John 1, this is how it starts. We've seen this all over John. Just a few weeks ago, we saw a conversation between Jesus and Philip. Right when Philip says this phrase, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus replies to him kind of exasperatedly, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus has manifested the Father in such a way that nature never could or the prophets never could. He is the full revelation of the Father. However, Jesus does more than just reveal the Father's name to us. He ministers on behalf of us before God. He makes the glorious claim of ownership. Did you see it? That all that belongs to the Father belongs to the Son, including the disciples and those who would follow him. But his ownership leads to protection. I have to read this part just because it's so good. You have to see it. Okay, look at, look at verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have sent me. Or sorry, for those who you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. Right? So there's the ownership. All, all that belongs to you belongs to me. And I, glor- I am glorified in them, which is good news in itself, friends. Jesus is glorified in his disciples. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Keep in mind, this is the farewell discourse. He's telling, him, he's telling them that he's about to leave. So I am no longer in the world, but they're staying. And he's concerned about that. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Man, there's good news in those four words. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, which is a reference to Judas, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have them joy fulfilled. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You see what he's doing here? He's interceding on behalf of his people. He's interceding on behalf of his disciples. He knows he's leaving and they're staying. He knows what the world can do to someone who treasures the word of God because he's had it done to him and he's about to exceptionally have it done to him next chapter. So he knows their fate if he leaves them as the ambassadors of the word of God. The world is going to hate them. And so he's interceding to the father on their behalf, keep them. I've kept them while I was with them. Now I'm leaving them and I'm praying you keep them, Father. I have guarded them. Now you guard them. This is glorious and it should lead to our assurance. It's beautiful and it gives us an insight to the priestly work that Jesus does for all eternity. I don't think this is exactly the same type of way Jesus intercedes as our eternal high priest. But I do think it gives us a glimpse into the activity that Jesus is fighting for our entry right into heaven. And he is petitioning the Father to guard and protect and be with his people. The fact that any person of the Godhead would even notice us is miraculous. The fact that they would work together for our good is grace. Yet that's not all what's happening in these verses. Here's two other themes. The first is unity, which I'm going to save for the third section because it comes up big time there. But don't miss it. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. The second, so the first is unity. The second is what does the preservation of the Father And the unity of the saints, what does it lead to? Our joy. Look at verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Don't let this pass you by. The Trinitarian king of the universe is concerned for your joy and has fulfilled it in himself. What's more is he knows both you 
your joy and your security are going to be threatened by the world. As Jesus leaves the world, he, the reason he prays for the Father's protection for his people is he knows that the world is going to try to rip them apart. And so he prays. He foresaw the persecution of his people, and he prays toward their joy amidst, amidst the avalanche. Verses 17 through 19. Let me just read these real quick. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sorry, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. These last few sections in this verse, remember we're in section two here. Jesus was praying for his disciples. These last few verses bear so much significance and meaning. We have a lot of people at Emmaus interested in missions. And for that, I praise the Lord. We have people who are wanting to bend everything in their lives towards this endeavor of the gospel to the nations. That is amazing. Yet hear me, one of my goals is to see it, that any who would dare claim that they want to pursue missions see themselves as theologians. Why? We see it in this verse. A robust understanding of missions entails a robust understanding of Trinitarianism. The first person of the Trinity sends the second person of the Trinity, whose work, by the way, is sealed by the third person of the Trinity. To do missions is to participate in Trinitarian activity, whether we like it or know it or not. Missions is Trinitarian work. Section three, Jesus prays for those who believe because of his disciples. Verses 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, these being his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. Let's stop there. We're going to jump back in in just a second. So in this third section, we move closer to home. Verse 20 says, I don't ask for these only, but also those who will believe in me through their word. So this prayer moves from the disciples themselves to those who will believe because of the disciples' word. And there is something remarkable about the sentence because look at Jesus' confidence. He says, I pray, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe. Not those, if any believe, are those who might possibly believe, but those who will believe. Jesus has confidence that the mission of the gospel is going to work. Why can he be so confident? Well, remember that he's the one who holds to the keys of salvation. He's the one who grants eternal life. Eternal life is Christ to give, not ours to earn. He can have confidence because he is sovereign. We see a proof that he was right and just in two different ways. Right? As this gospel ends, I don't want to do any spoilers but this gospel ends with an amazing conversation with, between Peter and Jesus, where Jesus asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes. And Jesus says, well, then feed my sheep. And he asks him again. And he asks him again. And each time, as Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you, Jesus says, well, then Peter, feed my sheep. And then what's the very next thing we see Peter doing? In Acts 2, Peter preaches. A good reason to think, by the way, to equate the feeding of the sheep to the preaching of the word. And also, in Jesus' preaching, what happens? Thousands of people, according to Acts 2, come to faith in Jesus Christ. Thousands of them. So, so Jesus says, 
I pray not only for my disciples, but those who will believe on behalf of their word. And guess what happens? In just a couple of chapters, thousands of people believe because of the disciples' word. And if that's not enough proof for you, look at the fact that you are here 2,000 years later believing. Nothing will stop the church. Not the gates of hell. Not modern culture. Not doubt. Not political warfare. Nothing, nothing like this is going to stop us, folks. And that is good news. For this third group, Jesus prays two primary things. One, that we would be unified. And two, that we would be with him in glory. For the first prayer, look at verses 21 and 22. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one. Don't miss this. So that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. I said in a sermon on chapter 14, that if you're tired of talk, of the unity of the church, then buckle up because it comes to a head in chapter 17. And here we are. Look where our unity is rooted and look what our unity leads to. Our unity is rooted in nothing less than the triune existence of God. Did you see it? Father, you are in me and I in you. Right, so our unity is rooted in God's triune existence. The love that characterizes the relationship of the Trinity is supposed to characterize the love of the believing community. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us. And if that's not already amazing enough, look where that leads to. The second part is that the purpose of the unity of the believing community, what's it lead to? That they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and that you've loved them as you love me. Christian unity is rooted in Trinitarianism, and it shows the world the glory of the Trinity. Let me repeat that just in case you didn't catch it. Christian unity is rooted in Trinitarianism, and it shows the world the glory of the Trinity. The world will know the Father has sent the Son and the world will know the Father loves them as a result of the unity of the church. That is a big claim. For Jesus to pray that is a big deal. Next, Jesus prays that we will be with him in glory. He says, Father, I desire, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And how incredible is that? It's always good when our greatest desire is a desire of Jesus. Or we know Jesus is going to get his way. So it's good news for us. We as Christians have no greater desire than to be with Jesus, right? We don't want heaven because there's going to be a lack of pain and reunification of family. We want heaven because Jesus is there. But we want him. He's our prize. He's our reward. Nothing else. If Jesus wasn't in heaven, then I do not want heaven. I want Jesus. Because of our union with Christ, where Christ goes, we go. When he ascends to the right hand of God, all those who are united to him go with him. Because of his faithful decrees, his faithful incarnation, because of his faithful union, because of the faithful spirit, because of the faithful union between sinner and saint, because of God's faithfulness, we can rest assured that this prayer of Jesus, that we will see his glory and be in glory with him, will come to pass. We will be with him, Emmaus. Those songs we sang aren't a fluke. One day our faith will turn to sight and we will see Jesus eye to eye. So we have to land the plane on this. My counter right here on the screen is, is getting very, very low. We have to land the plane on this study, on one of the most fascinating chapters in the Bible, the second person of the Trinity in conversation with the first person of the Trinity. So as we land the plane, allow me to give just a few charges as a response to our text. First, revel in the Trinity. This might not sound like a super 
um, applicable thing to do for me to just say my first pastoral charge is revel in the Trinity. But look, we as Christians are Trinitarians. We should revel in the Trinity. This text is glorious because it gives us an insight into the Trinity. Did you look at this? Just as a simple test case to show you how good this passage is. From this passage alone, we can see that Jesus and the Father are the same, such that they can say in verse 1, they share the same glory and they glorify one another. Verse 11, that they share the same name. Verse 10, that they share the same people and they share the same belongings, such that whatever is the Father's is also the Son's. And they can even speak, according to verse 21, with language that they are in one another. What does that mean? The Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. We can see from this text that they are the same. However, we can see from this text that they're not exactly the same. We're able to differentiate between the two. Just from this text alone, we see the Father gives authority and the Son receives it. Verse 1. The Father sins and the Son goes. Verse 3. The Father gives the Son a people and the Son receives the people. Verse 3. The Son manifests the name of the Father, not the other way around. Verse 6. The son prays to the father, not the other way around, the whole chapter. The father and the son are the same, and the father and the son are different. With this this observation alone, we're just scratching the very surface of Trinitarianism. This doctrine is glorious, and you might be wondering through all of this, where is the Holy Spirit? In this prayer, where's the Holy Spirit? But just remember Jesus just talked about the Holy Spirit. You remember Sam's sermon from last week? He just talked about the helper who is to come after he departs from them. Moreover, this is so key for your Christian theology. The Holy Spirit will actually be much of the, it will be the answer to much of what Jesus prays here. Especially the protection and the unity of the saints. The Holy Spirit was just spoken of as the helper who is to come when Jesus departs, and the Holy Spirit is going to be the answer to much of what's prayed right here. We love the doctrine of the Trinity here at Emmaus so much because it is not just a doctrine, it's the essence of our Lord. The Trinity isn't a concept, it's the way God exists. It's how he exists. If we love God, we love the Trinity. If you ask me why I love my wife, I could give you a billion reasons because she's that great. But what I love most about her, for lack of a better term, is all of it. I love all of it. I love Kristen for her, if I can make up a word, her Kristenness. Her Kristenness is what I'm attracted to. I love her Kristenness. I don't want her to lose any of her Kristenness. I want her to be Kristen. I love her and all that comes with it. But the bad news for me, the bad news for you who love someone else is the spouseness of your spouse that you so love will one day change. And it will ebb and it will flow. It'll have good days, it'll have bad days. And the Lord in his Trinitarianness will never wave. He will never alter. He will never be fickle. He doesn't have a Trinitarian character. He is Trinitarian. So revel in the Trinity. Love the Trinity. Second, pursue unity. Of course, this is an application of this text, right? Pursue unity. In Jesus' final and only long-recorded prayer, he prays for the unity of the believers multiple times. Do you think this matters to him? He has said that the world will know that the Father has sent him because of the unity of the church. So let me ask you a very frank question this morning. Is unity your aim? Is it even a conscious category in your mind? The unity of believers. Do you actually ever think about that? Some of you in this church are really good at this. Like, really good at this. You go out of your way to make sure there is peace amongst the brothers and sisters. You love one another. You provide for one another. 
You listen to one another. You protect one another. You repent to one another. And you seriously love one another. And for that, I couldn't say it enough a thousand times over. Thank you and press on. However, some of you, and hear me with pastoral love, you struggle with this. I think our generation is prone to chalk disunity up to different names. We don't think that we are sowing disunity. We just have a critical spirit. We aren't sowing disunity. We are just being authentic and honest. No. Actively working against any of the brothers and sisters in this body, whatever you want to call it, is actively pursuing disunity. And hear me, if this is you, repent. If the majority of the words you say or the thoughts you think about the church as a whole, its leaders, its members, if the words you say and the thoughts you think are ultimately normally negative, then repent. Instead of looking for things that are wrong with the church, not just this church, any church. Instead of looking for things that are wrong with the church, look for ways that you can graft your life deeper in unity with one another. Instead of acting as another accuser of the brothers and sisters, dare, dare to sink your life deeper in unity with them. In doing so, you'll make the whole household of faith stronger with Christ as our cornerstone. We must be a church that is actively pursuing to reflect the love shared in the Trinity with one another as we strive to sow unity deeper and deeper into our DNA. Nothing short of the proclamation of Trinitarian love is at stake. Third and lastly, rest that the Trinity has you. While Jesus was with his disciples, he protected them. In his departing from them, he prays the Father will protect them. As he now sits at the right hand of the Father in glory, they are indeed protecting us. The world may hate you as he has warned, but they have us. The incomprehensible second person of the Trinity, the incomprehensible first person of the Trinity, and as we will see, the incomprehensible third person of the Trinity are indeed protecting us. Your faith is not about how whole, how strong you're holding on to Jesus, but how much in his Trinitarianism he has united you to himself and is in doing so holding on to you. He has you, Christian. Go to sleep tonight knowing that tomorrow you'll wake up a Christian, not because of your power, but because of his. He has you. The Trinity has you. He is unchanging. If he's got you, he's got you forever. He's unchanging, and he has you. So last comment, don't forget that what is coming. Don't forget, chapter 18 is right around the corner, where we are about to see the pinnacle of the Gospels. Jesus is about to be betrayed, and we know where that leads. We are just a few weeks from seeing him crucified. Just a few weeks. In his crucifixion and in his resurrection, much of what he prays here is going to come to pass. The saints will be clean. They'll have foundation for unity. They will be protected in their unification of him. Sin will be dismantled. Shame will be taken care of. Death will will experience death. And he will show himself to be king. So go this week. Love the Trinity. Love the gospel. Seek unity with brothers and sisters at Emmaus in obedience to our Lord and rest in the ever-true reality that the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is our protector. Let's pray. God, we love you, and we don't want this to be the end of our study of John 17, but just the beginning. So, Lord, even as we move past this sermon, God, we ask for light, meaning that we want to be illuminated to what the text means. And we ask for heat, that we want a fire to be ignited within us about what the text means for our lives. Give that to us in John 17, Lord. Those four things that we talked about, may they just be reason after reason after reason to sing of your praise forever. God, I pray that the unity of Emmaus 
will be at the forefront of our minds. That we will be a church. Though there are differences, though there are distinctions, though there are sometimes divisions, that we would see unity as a gospel matter. That we will link arm and arm, standing on the, 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 the cornerstone that is you, Christ, and we will sink our lives deeper into one another and be one as you are one, Father, Son, and Spirit. God, we want to manifest your glory. We want to be sent, Jesus, because you were sent. We want all of these things in John 17, Lord, but we know to do any of them, we need your help. So Spirit, we pray that you would be our comfort, that you would be our protector. Spirit, we pray that you would unite us. Spirit, we pray that you would convict us to the core if we even think about sowing disunity. Father, Son, Spirit, we ask for you to delight in what we do and to be glorified in our time this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Like every week, we're gonna end this week with communion. And man, it's not just happenstance. We don't just think, Ending, ending every service in communion is just a cute idea, but it's so helpful. So as you come this morning and you tear the bread and you dip it, just think about the Trinitarian process it took to give you that right. The Father preordaining all things and giving to Jesus his people. Jesus taking those people, living a perfect life on their behalf, dying on the cross to, to, to shed his blood for the forgiveness of their sin, giving his robe of righteousness to us to cover our, our filthy rags, rising from the dead, proving that death is over, and then the Spirit coming and uniting all things, all people to Jesus. That, okay, that, that cosmic, crazy, beautiful gospel is what happened to make you be able to come to this table. It's a Trinitarian work. So as we come, let's worship the Trinity. If you're a believer in Christ, you believe in this Trinitarian reality and you have surrendered to him as Lord, we would invite you to come. You should come down this way, come take from one of the three tables and go back up to your seat this way. If you're a non-believer, we would ask that you not come and take the bread and juice, but sit in your seat and take Jesus. This is gonna do nothing for your salvation, only Jesus can save. So don't perform a hollow religious activity by coming because you feel embarrassed to stay in your seat. Don't feel embarrassed. Feel invited to talk to anyone who's coming down and taking and asking them, what does it mean to follow Christ? Church, we love you. We thank you. Come and take. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.